Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For synchronizing audio... You surgeons wouldn't understand what, what I do. It's, uh, it's <laughs> oh, very technical. They're here. <laughs> What's up, Z-Pack? It's your boy, ZDogMD, and I am here today with someone you will recognize if you're a fan of the show. This is Dr. Patrick Ha. He is the chief of head and neck surgical oncology at UCSF uh, Medical Center up the road in San Francisco. We're here on our Bay Area Radical Sabbatical interviewing folks and luminaries. Thanks for coming back yeah, on the show, absolutely. brother. It's a pleasure. So Patrick's a friend, um, and we got the families together, and anytime we do that, I like twist his arm to come on the show because he's a font of knowledge about stuff that all of us should care about, i.e. cancer, particularly the head and neck, uh, and a bunch of other issues. And related to that was what we talked about last year on the show, which I recently reposted, and I'm going to post a link to again, which is... HPV virus, human papillomavirus, and its effect on cancer, not just cervical cancer in women, which is what it's classically talked about, but head and neck cancers, anal cancers, penile cancers, vulva cancers, all of those kind of things can happen from HPV, HPV virus, which is why the vaccine is considered to be so important. And this is one of those vaccines that like everybody freaks out about. They're like, oh, you heard this story about this girl who became paralyzed or this or that happened. Turns out none of that is true. Uh, that's all anecdotal stories of correlation versus, hey girl, correlation. <laughs> that's, that's how we do academic medicine. This uh, what, You're not here, is that what you're saying? <laughs> you sure look here to me. So all joking aside, she just walked by. She is getting vaccinated as soon as she's at the correct age to do that because if we can prevent these cases of cancer, uh, we can do huge uh, good. And the meta-analyses on the vaccine, which has been out for well over a decade now, show that there are really no appreciable major side effects and the benefits uh, seem to be accruing. So, Yeah, absolutely. So, well, no, I totally agree. And I think for us in the head and neck world, you know, as we talked about last time, uh, what we're really t- focused on are tonsil and base of tongue cancers. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a very unique subset of other cancers that we normally treat in this head and neck region. Um, but for some reason, the vaccine or sorry, the virus likes to live in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we don't have necessarily the best data to support that it's going to affect tonsil and tongue-based cancers, it's the exact same strain. Um, so we really anticipate that the number of these cancers is going to start to decrease. Um, another thing we highlighted last time is that this is the one subset of cancer in the U.S., at least in the head and neck, that's actually rising in incidence. Hmm. So it, it's it's we call it sort of a slight epidemic in our field, meaning that smoking is going down, so larynx cancers, tongue cancers, those are all going down, uh, but oropharynx cancer, so tonsil, tongue-based, are on the rise. 
Um, so yeah. they've actually exceeded the number of cervical cancers in the U.S. Wow. So this this type of cancer, which is HPV-related, and it's the same strain that causes cervical cancer? And there's three strains, right, that are typically oncogenic, meaning they cause cancer. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So within the head and neck, it's there. We can, we'll start talking about this, I yeah, guess. Yeah, because, we'll, sorry, I, I forgot to say, we're going to take some of your questions from last year that accrued, that we didn't get to answer. And Patrick was like, hey, there's some good questions here. Let's talk about them. And I'm like... Let's, all right, let's do this. So, so we are gonna address them. Yeah, but so um, within the head and neck, there are these nuanced differences between uh, head and neck cancer and cervical cancer um, caused by HPV and notably the strain. So mm -hmm. for us, it's really predominantly HPV 16. Mm -hmm. So that's probably 90% of the time, that's the strain that we can identify. Mm. Um, a smaller percentage of the time, it's 18. Um, and then sometimes we can't really pinpoint it because we're not necessarily looking that hard to exactly to pinpoint. find the virus. Yes. Yeah, but certainly those are all the strains covered by any HPV vaccine that you look at. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, and, and people will ask, and this will come up. And we'll answer it about you know, well, if it doesn't cover all the strains, how is it going to prevent cancer? Or, you know, uh, you know, why shouldn't we vaccinate someone who's forty-five? Right. You know? And and you know, the short answer to that last part is well, because. Most people get exposed to HPV very young through any kind of sexual contact, kissing, uh, all the way through to intercourse, oral sex, etc. And so the cat's kind of out of the bag for most people when they're in their 40s. Yeah. Some maybe not. <laughs> you know who we're talking about. We know who we're talking about, but, but for most. And so um, the idea that you really got to uh, give this vaccine when they're... Before they're sexually active, and this is where I think there's a lot of this um, moral police come in, and they go, "Well, uh, first of all, my child will never be sexually active." Okay, yeah, good luck with that, Ace. Uh, as a dad who is ready to buy a shotgun to fend off any suitors for my girls, I know that I cannot laminate my children with a laminating machine. I cannot keep them safe. They will do what they're going to do, and and so we have to keep them as safe as we can medically. And this is a way to do it. So you do it early, and, and that's part of the reason we do that. Yep. Now, now again if we can prevent cancer. And you mentioned that maybe the data isn't uh, robust enough yet to show the prevention in these tonsillar and, and base of tongue cancers that are associated with HPV 16 and 18. Uh, do you, but do you think there's enough uh, sort of um, early evidence or do you think there's just a plausible physiological reason why we're gonna prevent? Um, th there is a little bit of evidence that's coming out that you can actually reduce um, the incidence of oral swab HPV presence in people who have been vaccinated. Hmm. So it, there's a bunch of questions about, you know, how can you test for it? And certainly you can take a swab in the mouth hmm. and you can send it for HPV and you can say, okay, do I have this at the time? But really what that is, it's a spot check of incidence. Hmm. It doesn't mean that just because you have that means you're going to get tonsil cancer. Right. Um, and so that association is a little bit harder to get. Right. Um, so what we really need is survival data or incidence data that, you know, it, it will show that this exists. So one of the differences is that we don't have a precancerous phase the way that cervical cancer goes through very discrete phases before it becomes cancer. So you can identify this population if they have HPV, they're going to get this and you can swab or you can screen or you can scrape some cells and look for that and then, you know, stratify their risk. Hmm. For us, it really is a, a, a situation where they either have cancer, that's HPV related, or they don't have it. Hmm. And they may have an oral infection. They might have had exposure to HPV or, you know, to, to um, some environmental, um, you know, cause for that. But then it, that doesn't mean they actually have cancer. Hmm. So that is a very different um, setup in the mouth and the back of the throat than it is for the cervix. Yeah. So, again, there's not a, <coughs> excuse me, there's not a, 
a perfect um, uh, uh, model to compare the two. Correct. There's yeah. plenty of sort of uh, <coughs> physiological reasons to think that that vaccination and prevention might be helpful. Now, in the old days, it was about smoking. That's right. And we're starting to see that change now? Well, so in this subset, yes. So it used to be that if you developed a head and neck cancer of any kind, squamous cell cancer, hmm. um, it was predominantly in uh, people who smoked. And if you drank, that also contributed. If you did both to a high amount, then that multiplied, you know, so that you were, you know, 15 or 20 fold risk of developing a head and neck cancer. Hmm. Um, for tonsil and tongue based cancer nowadays, the, the tables are kind of flipped where um, certainly there are people who come in with uh, a history of smoking or maybe they did it you know 20 years ago uh, and some people are currently smoking um, but most of the people who come in have HPV related disease so probably you know in some practices up to 80% of people with tonsil cancer tongue-based cancer um, they now have HPV related disease they might have had a distant history of smoking and drinking mm. um, but really if you think of what what caused that cancer is probably the, the HPV virus yeah and you know again this is relatively new as you said, it's a kind of an epidemic in your space. And again, we, we say this because we want to understand what's causing cancer. And even the idea that viruses could cause cancer, it was a 20th century sort of discovery, the onco, oncoviruses, that these cancers right. insinuate themselves in a way in the genetic makeup and, and can lead to whether it's tumor uh, suppression, failure, or, or, or whatever. And I forget, now I'm getting too... <laughs> Do you know any of this? I don't. I do, but oh, yeah. nerd! <laughs> I was like, I hope he says, "Well, we don't need to know this," but he, of course, he knows it. Uh, uh, actually, you know what? You know, it, it, just for my edification. Yeah. How is it that HPV might cause cancer? Well, so there's two basic mechanisms that they think of, um, and so there's um, these viral proteins they call oncoproteins. So mm. basically, when they integrate into the genome, into the DNA of a host cell or your cell. Um, they basically, these viruses can oftentimes sit episomally, which means they sit kind of at the periphery of the DNA, mm. then they make a whole bunch of more virus and they spill out and that's how they become infectious. Mm. Um, but then there are times uh, when the, it can actually integrate and actually jump and, and become part of the DNA. Part of the DNA. So it's kind of hidden from Body view. snatcher sort of deal. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so um, there's two particular proteins called E6 and E7, um, and they affect known pathways, known cancer pathways. Um, so there's this p53 gene and something called an rb gene a retinoblastoma so those are known genes that are are prevalent in many different types of cancers um, and these pathways get disrupted and so these it's thought that these viral proteins really just disrupt those specifically mm. um, so this is one of the reasons maybe that in our world for the head neck cancers um, people with hpv related cancers tend to do better than someone who's smoked and drank their whole lives where they've accumulated a whole bunch of different mutations mm. that may be harder to treat in this case, there's maybe one or two different pathways altered, um, so it's kind of a simpler cancer to treat. That's, see, that's fascinating. These cancer, like you said, if, if it's not something where you can pinpoint, okay, this was a viral influence in the way that you described, well then, you know, radiation, certain chemotherapy, surgical approach might be enough because there isn't an accumulation of error, right. a complexity, and an evolution of this tumor that makes it Difficult. Right. So, yeah. so even in the cases where people have you know, disease that has spread, so it's gone from their tonsil to their lungs, normally would have considered that a really you know bad prognosis and mm. you know got a year to live. Um, some of these patients can live three, four, or five years, even with metastasis. They're being treated. Right. Um, but because of the fact that it was predominantly HPV derived, there's something about it that makes it behave better, even in the situation where it has spread. Yeah, so that's, that's fascinating. And again, it speaks to the complex nature of cancer. Cancer is not one animal. That's right. And and a particular type of cancer, even within that type, it's not one animal. Yeah. Just like breast cancer is not one animal. 
relating to this, because you mentioned people who are undergoing treatment can live three, four, or five years, even with metastasis. Um, there was recently more data that uh, they looked at analysis and said, you know, people who kind of forego the traditional treatments that you might offer, whether it's surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, whatever it is, they um, they do worse if they just go the alternative medicine or complementary medicine route. Yeah, I'm not, you know, obviously um, we're biased in the people that we see. You right, know, and the so people, you gotta understand our bias. Yeah, yeah, and the people who tend to come see us are those who, um, you know, they may consider those treatments, and I think that, um, you know, we try to be as holistic as we can, given that we don't have great data to say, you know, whatever treatment or path that they're they're selecting um, may or may not work. Mm-hmm. But but really, what I try to emphasize is that we have data on what we do. We don't know whether what you treat may be adjunctive. Mm-hmm. Um, we also don't know whether it might harm it. it right. Might, it might interfere with treatment. Actually, a lot of a lot of herbs and different things like that do affect pathways of drug metabolism. Right. right. So it, so it may. So I think that as long as we have a very clear understanding of what they're taking. Um, and I think also we, we tend to have sort of a, a compromised middle zone where during treatment, don't do these things. You know, mm. afterwards, if you're looking for symptom control or mm. improvement, then by all means, if this is making you feel better and, and on the path to recovery, then I would say, you know, you should do that. And maybe it's something that we even offer or suggest to other patients if we found that that was very beneficial. I, I actually think that's a good uh, way to deal with it because people, they do want to also feel like they're in control of their care a little bit and some of these pathways offer a little bit more control and whether it works we don't we don't really know but we know that there's a strong placebo effect with many therapies right. and if you can do something that isn't harmful that's why I like where you said don't do it while we're in the middle of say a chemotherapy uh, but you can do it after and talk to us and make sure it's not interfering with anything. I think that's great. Yeah. But, you know, the tricky part, and I think a lot of hardcore science-based people will say, well, it's a slippery slope because we're sort of advocating what in, what in some instances is almost a magical kind of thinking. So we don't have a good basis for this, but there's energy fields and there's this and that. And kind of encouraging that thinking kind of leads to an erosion of the... Um, uh, the belief that science can actually help improve outcomes. Now, I, I'm actually somewhere on the fence about that because I'm, I'm a big believer in harnessing placebo effect if you can, and also that we don't know everything, that we have to be humble in medicine. And, you know, the, med- the alternative medicine that's shown to work, we call it medicine. So let's study it and let's look at it, whether it's cannabis or whatever it is, and we've done shows on this. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I think also, you know, what's important is that um, you're in a partnership with that patient. Mm. So I think if you alienate them by saying, you know, you have to do this or there's no other acceptable way, um, when you yourself are not actually sure, um, then I would say, you know, you've, you've not necessarily treated that patient appropriately, mm-hmm. you know, especially if they then go, okay, forget this medical. I'm program. done with I'm this. I'm done. I'm yeah. going to do my thing. We see that. Yeah. 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 So I think it's important to, to be reasonable and to talk to the patient about it and communicate well. Do you see a lot of uh, patients who are coming to you for a second or a third opinion as a tertiary care provider? Yeah, that happens all the time. And what, what do you think are the biggest reasons they do that? Is it because they don't trust the other doctor? Did they have a bad experience? Was the other doctor actually incapable of treating? No, I, I mean, I think it's a, a variety of reasons. And obviously, you know, we, being in an academic center where we treat this disease, you know, almost every day, essentially, we're, we're taking care of patients with this. Um, that certainly goes a long way in terms of, you know, the patient's faith in our treatment plans and, and not to mention our ability to actually create a center that focuses on this disease. Right. So, you know, we're not 
our, our attention is, is solely focused on this so that we don't have to think about patients with breast cancer or lung cancer this you know our job is to take care of this right so we create a system and a pathway of treatment yeah that is solely around this and so you know I would understand that if I I don't know if I went to a car dealership and I wanted to get my car serviced I would probably go to the dealership that sold my car right because you know they I assume they have expertise and so I think most of the times honestly it's a question of validating you know they they met another physician they had a treatment plan they just want to go does this sound right because they don't know anything about this cancer mm-hmm. right and so in 99 percent of the time you go yeah that sounds totally fine you know mm-hmm. you should go for it you know we, we agreed with that plan yeah um do you do a lot of telehealth visits for people who are far away we're, we're starting to do more of that yeah. um you know there, there are certain logistical problems that obviously people have to be mildly tech savvy yeah they have to be able to hear okay and you know that interaction um, has right to, but but I think in particular, a patient that you know, um, or if they're looking for a second opinion and you just need to review records and kind of meet with them, um, you know, what you lose out, obviously, is a physical exam. Right. Where, you know, you might have imaging, but you can't feel something or, you know, mm. so there's a little nugget that may be missing from your, your entire picture. Right. Um, the other thing that we're starting to do more of is actually for our speech-language pathologists um, is to try to do these telehealth visits if someone is getting treated, you know, at a distance. Right. Um, but they may not have SLP support. Right. Locally, you know, in terms of people who understand head and neck cancer, um, so they can <clears throat> see the, you know, the, the our SLPs. They can go through therapy. They can do a lot of those things actually through a through that interface. Um, and it keeps them going. And we have a ton of SLP uh, fans on the show. They've been wanting us to talk about speech and language pathology forever. Yeah. In head and neck, it's a, such a crucial piece yeah. of what you guys do. Um, speaking of technology, you mentioned you have to be tech savvy. You're pretty tech savvy because you printed out hella questions from Facebook. Let's pull them up. So we're going to read some uh, questions that came up from the last show we did on HPV and head and neck cancer with uh, Dr. Patrick Ha, who is the head of uh, head and neck surgical oncology at UCSF. Uh, kind of a big deal and also a small deal because he's my friend. So we, we have him on the show and he's a great resource. So let's go to some of your questions. Um, what do you think here? <clears throat> All right. Well, there's yeah. a couple of questions here that we sort of touched on, but uh, Marlo Feller and Nicole Dill asked similar questions about um, are there routine swabs for testing uh, HPV in the back of the throat, i.e., is there something like a pap smear for the throat? Um, hmm. And, you know, for example, if you were in family practice, how would you test for this type of cancer, and would a swab or something be, be helpful? And I think this also got to some other people's questions, like how do you screen for head and neck cancer? So yeah. we're kind of conflating, is there a pap smear of the throat to test for the virus to see if you're at risk, and then how would you screen? Yeah, so the first question, again, we touched on was, is there a swab that you can do to test for HIV? And the answer is yes. Um, the question is, is, is it helpful? And the answer right. is probably no. Right, um, because so many people are positive, right? Yeah, and yeah. so a good probably 10, 11, 12% of people just in the U.S., if you went around swab them, are positive. Mm. Yet, you know, the number of people with this type of cancer per year is probably about somewhere around fifteen or 16,000. Mm. So this gets to the question of screening, where if you have such a big population, and just a small percentage, you know, has this actual disease. True positives, yeah. Yeah, then your screening test has to be pretty darn close to perfect. Otherwise, you're going to send all these people for imaging and all these things when... Cause trouble. Yeah. Big trouble. Yeah, yeah. And, and drive up the cost, actually, right. when you're trying to help them. Right. Um, so you're actually hurting the majority to help a minority. Right. Um, so, yeah, so the bottom line is that we have these swabs. Occasionally, we get people referred in from an office where they do the swab and it's positive and they're all concerned. Um, and certainly in that case, we'll take a look around and we'll, you know, maybe pass a little scope down, look at the back of the tongue and do these things. 
but our expectation is that it's going to be negative. Yeah. Right. So it's not very helpful. And so, um, if anything, I think it makes people more anxious. Right. Like many screening tests that, that, that again, where the incidence is low. And so your false positives are going to be higher by definition and, and it's going to create iatrogenesis, which is we're going to try poking to find stuff and we might cause more harm, more anxiety, more stress right. and more false positives. So that's yeah, a, so, a good, so unfortunately question. we don't have a good swab, a swab or a, a good test. Um, that but actually we, looks for tonsil cancer. But we might have a good prevention, which is vaccine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually one step before that. Right. Um, so one of the questions I think that was related <clears throat> to that was, um, oh, uh, so a, a few quick people um, asked about, and we really should have covered this, was, you know, what are the symptoms? And that's, yeah. a, that's really a great, great question. It's kind of yeah. important. How would you know yes. what are symptoms and signs of, of head and neck cancer? Yeah, and so I think that that really is, um, it's a tough one. And this is why um, a lot of times people present with a neck mass. And what that neck mass implies is that the cancer's already had the time or had the, whatever, the picked up the aggressiveness for it to start in the tonsil and then go to a lymph node. Mm. So it's metastasized, not far, but just locally or uh, regionally. Um, and so that, that speaks to the fact that either these, these cancers like to spread pretty quickly, mm. which is probably the case, at least to the lymph nodes, uh, but also what it means is that um, people don't feel it on the inside. Where they go, hey, there's something going on here. Find it before it actually goes to this lymph node. Mm. Um, but the, the signs that people will typically present with um, are dysphagia, which just means it's hard to swallow. Maybe it hurts a little bit. Um, there's this, uh, this phrase we use called referred pain, which means uh, where they actually get pain in their ear, usually when swallowing mm. or um, you know talking or something. Uh, but basically the pain fibers where the cancer is in the back of the throat, they're not so pinpoint. And so when something brushes across them or you, you know, eat something acidic, it, it, the nerve fibers cross and it sends pain to the ear. Hmm. That's um, interesting. So, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so that actually is, um, we see that in tongue cancer as well, so not specific for mm. or pharynx cancer. Um, so that would be one sign. If you can have referred pain, can you have referred pleasure as well? Um, only you would know. So, <laughs> so, so referred pain. What's interesting is that we don't want to panic people who have these symptoms and go, right. oh my God, I have cancer. It's just one potential sign and it could be nothing. It could be something different. But if you, again, if you're at risk, if something's going on, you may want yeah. to pay attention. And I, I really think that I tell, and, and maybe this conversation I have mostly with people who They've already had this cancer. We treated them. They're doing great, but every sore throat they have, every yeah. tickle in the back, they it's start a big to deal. yeah. yeah. They, they're really you know hypersensitive about it. Mm -hmm. um, so in the same lines, what I tell them is, it needs to be there for two weeks, mm. consistently, yeah, or getting worse. You know, it's not yeah. like a cold; it should pass. Right. Know? But if you've had a sore throat for like two or three weeks, it's not getting better. Mm -hmm. You feel well otherwise. You might want to go see your doctor and say something. Well, why is this occurring? And there are a number of reasons why that could be happening. So it doesn't mean that you have cancer. But it could be um, reflux, it could yeah, be exactly. sinusitis. You're right. All right. So there's a number of things, but um, in any case, I think that is one of the symptoms that when people have the cancer who are diagnosed and they look back and go, "Yeah, I guess it did tickle a little bit. You know, I had something, and it just didn't get better, and they just sort of let it, you know, let, let it, it pass because yeah. it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. It typically mm -hmm. wasn't affecting, um, you know, their life or what they were eating. Mm. In the extreme case, then it's really hard to swallow. You lose weight. Um, you know, it may become hard to breathe, your voice may sound muffled, you may bleed, you know, cough up blood and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but those cases are pretty unusual because most of the times when, once someone shows up with a bump in their neck, they know to, to seek attention. Do you see a lot of cases where people are just in denial about it and they let things grow and get out of control? It, 
We don't see that many because mm-hmm. maybe it's because we live in the Bay Area and people are people are hyper vigilant. Yeah, you know, and, and there's a oh my god, Doctor Ha, I have a little thing here. And I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, so there's that, and you know, but we we do get um, a pretty wide range of, of folks who come visit us. Um, so I think there are there's a subset of people who typically will uh, will ignore things. Right. For some reason, I think that this, because it typically is a younger population, like in the mid 40s and 50s. I'm glad that's um, young now. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's not <laughs> me, certainly. Um, but, you know, that that group is, um, I don't know, maybe a little more in tune with healthcare. And, you mm. know, they, they've, when something is off, they will seek attention. Right, yeah, yeah. That, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a generalization, but that, that may be the reason. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Um, what do we got here? So uh, let's see, uh, Lyndon Deming. So is the vaccine for preventing the strain of HPV that causes cervical cancer effective in preventing these cancers? So we kind of touched on that. The idea is that this, there's overlap in the strains that cause cancer, even though they tend to be predominant in different uh, cancers, or different strains. That's right. yeah. but, but, the, but the same uh, vaccine should cover those strains. Right, so yeah. that's why, you know, again, um, there's certain things we do in medicine because we have studies and randomized studies to say we tested against this and this. We know for sure that this is this is happening. Then there's other studies you look. Well, this is just so logical. Mm. Why would we need to study do a study that would seem harmful to people to, you know, not give this and give this? You know, when we know that this already works. Right. You know, and so it's not that this is a study per se, but the the fact that it's exactly the same strain mm. and we know this based on the dna sequence that is exactly the same thing that's mm. causing cervical cancer so if you can eliminate that or prevent that from you know causing an infection early on and give that person immunity then you know it, it's it should help them with any other yeah. type of cancer that is caused by that remembering that the downside is soreness in the arm yeah it is not you know death it's not autism. It's not the things that people keep talking about uh, because they're not true. Um, excellent. You know, I was, I was going to say, uh, actually, let's answer another question. Then I want to get back to the CNN piece about vaccinating men yeah. in Great Britain because I think it's an interesting angle because a lot of people are like, what about boys? And so the whole thing is boys get this, girls get this. And in addition, boys can get uh, anorectal cancer from HPV as well and penile cancer which you don't want, no. to my understanding. That would be more horrible probably than tonsil cancer. I would yeah. say, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the amputation involved is not pleasant. Yeah. The surgery is certainly not as yes, pleasurable. No. Um, Preferred so pleasure. Christy Rosada, <laughs> Rosado asked, why does it seem as some more men have HPV head neck cancers? Hmm. Um, I don't know what Christy does, but that's very, um, uh, I know it's a very knowledgeable question, but hmm. um, so the incidence is definitely higher in men hmm. to the point where it's like two or three fold to one. Um, higher in men than women. Hmm. Um, and I got to say, we don't really know why that is. Huh. So it's not an acquisition of virus orally somehow that men get? It could be. So there's a lot well, of hypotheses, yeah. you know, of, of the, the actual transmission itself. And is there a higher disease burden that happens if a man performs oral sex on a woman versus right. vice versa? Um, or whether it's uh, some immune system issue that, that men have. It's not as strong at fighting off this infection. Right. Man flu, yeah. case in point. Yeah. So that there could be something to that. or yeah. you know, But other than that, we don't really know the answer to that. It's interesting. Now, yeah. it, it, are you seeing it more in a population of men who have sex with men? Um, not necessarily, okay. actually. Yeah. 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 So it's um, obviously that's a smaller population. So right. it's sometimes a little bit hard, hard to, to study you know, and to, quantify. To yeah. know for sure. 
Um, but yeah, as far as I know, there's not mm. necessarily a difference. Mm. So then that gets to this question, I think, of do we vaccinate boys? In the U.S., it is now recommended that you vaccinate both boys and girls. It's a gender-neutral assignment of the vaccination. That wasn't always the case. It was just an article in CNN about how the National Health Service in Great Britain was struggling for a long time with this because that health service has to weigh cost very carefully because they're providing it for their uh, citizens basically on the tax dollar. So they do a very careful cost analysis and they felt that the initial theory was that by vaccinating women, girls, enough, you would generate enough herd immunity, enough community immunity that boys would be protected by proxy. And it turns out they never reached enough of a vaccination level to do that. So they said, you know what, we better just vaccinate boys. And it made sense. And they get a discount on the vaccine and so on and so forth. Uh, because out of pocket, this vaccine can be expensive. It can yeah. be, you know, $200 a dose or so. And you have to take three, two to three doses to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that um, it, it, we talked about this last time or last show, I think. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense to vaccinate boys to prevent tonsil cancer. Because mm-hmm. there's not enough of it. Yes. On the yeah. other hand, we in the head and neck community are really happy that that's happening. Because we're, we're seeing it more in men. And it's the same strain, so we believe that's going to help a large majority of our population, right. you know, 20, 30 years from now. And this was part of the calculus the Brits did. They said, well, okay, rate of head and neck cancer still relatively low yeah. compared to the total population, but you have penile cancer, you have anal, anal cancer, um, and there's a question of are you generating better herd immunity in general by also vaccinating right. boys? Because the boys are the ones you know, that are going to be dating my daughters, which will never happen because daddy's <laughs> going to own a shotgun. And, uh, and, and so having that bigger, broader immunity might have a, a synergistic effect on the population as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. As it has been shown in, you know, measles and mumps and rubella and why that herd immunity collapses when we have people who don't vaccinate their children. Right. So yeah. you need enough of it and then you yeah. need a stable population. Yep. You know, that's not traveling around or kind of mix, intermixing with groups. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Going to the to Marin where no one's vaccinated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Woodfin asked a question, a simple one, any alternatives to chemo and radiation? Um, mm. So that's a very broad question, but one that I don't think we had a good chance to cover. Um, and one that's really exciting for us as surgeons is that uh, you may have heard of this this. We, our acronym is TORS, or Transoral Robotic Surgery. Hmm. Um, and what that means is that we can use an endoscopic robot or this tool hmm. uh, to help us get back there and do fairly complex resections um, without making an incision. So it all is just happening through the mouth. So it's like uh, down the, down the yeah. craw and this thing does stuff. Yeah. Well, we're like a we're the console. We're controlling it. Oh, it's just okay. A, it's not you know. It's a little bit. So it's yeah. not like the Jetsons. Yet. It's not yeah. like a self-driving car. Got yes. with a little. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're still there manning it and controlling right. it. Right. Um, but it allows us to go around corners and see in high definition. You know, like we're wow. staring right at it. Um, so we can take out a lot of these early stage tumors um, and do a neck dissection, remove these lymph nodes, and potentially try to avoid ever having to receive radiation or chemo radiation. Ah. So this is one of the, the things I think that being at a tertiary center and offering this, it gives us a broader scope of looking at a patient and saying, okay, what are the features that would make me think we could do this or not do this successfully, um, and then sending them down this path. Wow. So what, what it also means is that we have a lot more trials open now where we can look at this and study this and say, okay, are we helping? Um, the other thing we can do is actually introduce a, uh, an endoscopic surgery 
and then say, okay, let's reduce the dose of radiation or let's not give chemo mm-hmm. with the radiation as a result of this. So there's a lot of excitement about trying to de-intensify therapy and try to decrease things here and there to try to reduce the side effects. I think that's happened a bit in breast cancer as well and maybe in prostate. Yep. And yeah. So this is a good thing because yes. you're reducing morbidity, you're reducing side effects, you're reducing unnecessary radiation, you're reducing all these potential complications. Yeah. And that's wonderful. And you know, it's interesting because we were talking earlier about uh, sleep apnea, which isn't specifically your field of research or expertise, but you you deal with it. Yeah. And the fact that now they're getting so good that they can put in little endoscopic cameras and, and see while you're sleeping what part of your airway is causing the trouble when you're snoring or when you're having obstructive sleep apnea, and then address just that. Yeah. And that's tremendous. So it's no longer just you throw a big old, you know, Silence of the Lambs CPAP on your face. Do you hear them, Clarice? Do you hear the bleating of the lambs? Hmm? Uh, it, you can target this specific piece of tissue. Yeah, so more and more, it's very individualized and personalized treatment. Ah, and that's yeah. what we want. That's what Health 3.0 is all about. It's about, first of all, being able to spend time with our patients so we know who they are and then treating them individually. And that can involve molecular genetic testing. It can involve just having a conversation, which you're quite good at, which I'm very impressed as a surgeon. You seem to actually listen to patients and talk to them and care about them. And you know, you said something before we started. Look at you guys. What's up? Come over here. She's getting vaccinated. <laughs> How's the fire out there? Hot. Is it hot? Yeah. Um, oh, you guys are t- bouncing. Okay. Go say bye. Um, the idea that. Uh, <laughs> As, a, as just a practice thing, we were talking about like the difference between medicine and say not doing medicine or another field, right, of, of interest, whether it's business or working as whatever. There's something about medicine where there are days when you don't realize it's happening, but you are making a difference in people's lives. You're helping people and it's a kind of a special calling. You may have a bad week, a bad day, a bad hour where you don't feel that, but at any point you can wake up and it's there, it's right there. And you're saying on your best days, it's there all the time. And I think that's what is really wonderful about what we get to do. You get yeah. to do it in surgery, I get to do it. Uh, I'm not sure what I do in internal medicine. I'm gonna tell you the truth, I don't think I do a lick of good. All right, hey, see you guys. No. Um, are, is everybody bouncing? See you guys. Half the family's leaving and we're gonna, hey, we're gonna wrap up our show. You wanna sit in my lap? While we do the rest of our show? All right. She's so excited. I know, she's like, okay, I'll do it. All right, so now, did we have other questions we wanted to answer? Oh, yeah, and then we'll... um, so there's a question with uh, by Judith Shaw Beatty hmm. about would you please address the belief that HPV vaccine doesn't protect against all of the strains? Hmm. Which is actually true. Yeah. It it's not a belief, it's a truth. Yeah, So, it, but it doesn't have to necessarily for cancer uh, because what they're looking at is there are many different strains. There's over 200 now. Mm. I was looking this up, but back when I was in training, there was about 60. And then oh. you know, by the end of my training, there was about 100. <laughs> and now there's over 200. So They keep coming up with more. Yeah, they keep yeah. finding more and more because yeah. we're getting better detecting it right. and sequencing it and things like that. But um, only a very small percentage of them, like these you know, maybe three, four, five strains, actually can cause cancer or are known to cause cancer. Are known, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the vaccine doesn't necessarily need to cover 200 different strains. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've really focused on the ones that they feel either can cause um, 
cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some in our field that can cause respiratory papillomatosis or warts within the throat, mm. um, which can be actually life-threatening if mm. they get bad enough to occlude the airway. Yeah, I've seen that, um, yeah. So th there are other strains that they cover as a result, you know, trying to get those strains. Um, but they don't, by all means, by any means, cover all the strains. Right. Yeah. yeah. And again, so that's a great question. And again, it's not a, it's not a question that sinks the idea of getting a vaccine. In fact, it's all the more reason to get the vaccine that covers the strains that matter. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was another question. There's some funny ones here. Do you do local events? <laughs> I love these. Uh, is HPV vaccine more contingent on age or sexual activity? You know, honestly, it's so hard to gauge sexual activity. Yeah. You kind of have to make it contingent on age because you just never, I mean, it, it's, it doesn't take much to get infected. Um, and again, at some point we'll get an HPV. Actually, we had my uh, brother-in-law on the show. Uh, he's an infectious disease doc, and we talk quite a bit about HPV vaccines. So yeah. the, the, I'll reboot that episode as well. Um, someone asked, uh, so Liz... Mangieri. Mangieri, yeah, she's she's a big time Z packer. One yeah, of so she she was asking, you know, have things improved um, in terms of the treatments, and and like we talked about with the robotic surgery, I think they have, um, and this sort of lends itself also to other um, systemic treatments like immunotherapy, which we didn't really get a chance to talk too much about. Mm. Um, so definitely things have changed in the sense that you know we're, our surgeries are much more modest, I guess, you know, so we don't necessarily need to do radical neck dissection, removing all the lymph nodes and the, the muscle and the nerves and things like that. So we can spare a lot of those structures during surgery. Um, the other thing is that the post-operative treatment, the radiation that's given, for example, um, is now much more targeted. Yeah. You know, just the techniques that they have. And now with proton therapy coming out, that's going to be even more targeted. Mm. Um, so the, the idea is that you don't hit normal tissue. So to have less less collateral damage, hmm. um, and then with with an immunotherapy, um, I'm not an immunotherapist, but obviously we we deal with a lot of patients who are on this. But um, there's a landmark study that came out about a year ago, um, looking at immunotherapy in patients who have had uh, head and neck cancer uh, failure of treatment, basically. So they've had surgery and chemo and radiation and maybe even other chemotherapies to try to you know take care of the metastases. Um, and in this group, in this really tough to treat group, they gave single agent immunotherapy uh, and they actually had about a 15 to 20% response rate. Wow. So that doesn't sound awesome, yeah. but on the other hand, this group this is, is advanced cancer. Yeah. Yeah. They have nothing else to offer these patients. Right. And you give right. one drug uh, with yeah. a really low soda side effect profile. Yeah. 15 to 20% did well, um, actually had a response. Um, and then there's this group that had this tail of response where they're doing fine. They actually, beyond the study limit, where the study cut wow. off after two years, they're still alive and doing well. Wow. So there may be this, this group of patients, that and response. this is just with a chance, you know, one drug, and there are many now, um, where they actually had durable response, as opposed yeah. to chemo where you give it and you expect it to fail, the tumor's gonna eventually outgrow it. Right. Um, this, you're actually training your immune system to go fight the cancer. Which makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. so in that case, you might have a lasting response, as opposed to just, it's only responding to what I'm giving it. That is very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very exciting. Um, you know, so I think the bottom line, guys, is like there's a lot of cool stuff happening in cancer, particularly head and neck that we're talking about here. This is to some degree preventable. Don't smoke. Don't drink too much. Don't smoke and drink too much and get vaccinated. Get your kids vaccinated with HPV vaccine. When you have a complex situation, a tertiary center can help, particularly if it's a new technique like robotics whether it's immunotherapy, whether it's um, a more holistic approach of everything. And Dr. Ha and I agree that there's a space for patient empowerment that's important. 
and it is a, you, you talked about it earlier it's a really shared decision making with absolutely yeah, yeah. and uh, and instead of being uh, paternalistic and patronizing and condescending we're partners and you have expertise that you can share with them and they can make decisions based on being educated about it and that's what we're trying to do even with the show is try to spread some knowledge and get people to be empowered to ask the right questions of their doctors and seek a second opinion if it's necessary from a tertiary center like where you are um, any other parting sort of thoughts in this uh, pantheon no I think this is this has been a lot of fun for me oh, and man. I think it's great to that people are so interested in this um, and engaged in the topic you know? yeah the last time we talked about it people were just it, it strikes me because a lot of people have a loved one who've had this. Um, many people work in the space. And so to see how it's changed, even for me since training, you know, ENT yeah. was a barbaric thing where yeah. you just chopped and t- took everything out. And now you're talking about sparing a lot of these structures and, and, and the rate of being able to help people with HPV related cancers in particular. And people are just smoking less. Do you think vaping is contributing to this? Yeah, we don't know. I, it's hard to say because HPV was around in the tonsils and the tongue base even before vaping became a thing. Right, yeah. Um, I think the hard part is, is that it's just an unregulated space. That we don't understand. Yeah, anything. and it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. You know? Smoking marijuana? Do you think it's as harmful as, uh, say, smoking tobacco or something in terms so the, of the effects on head and neck? So actually, the studies show that um, it is probably not as bad as smoking cigarettes, mm-hmm. um, but that there is a distinct increase in the risk of head and neck cancer from smoking marijuana. Got it. Um, so it's a little hard to study because, you know, it's... It often comes with comorb- comorbid smoking. Yeah, it may also come with... Um, well, in other words, like saying how much you smoke a day from cigarettes, you can say, well, I smoke half a pack right. or three quarters of a pack. With marijuana, it's kind of hard to, to I smoke two joints, yeah. and then I smoke two joints, and then yeah, I smoke and two I, I share that one right. with it. You know, I, right. It's hard to and know. bong versus vaporizer versus joint versus edibles versus there's so many different routes. Yeah. So yeah, it's very tough. So I think it's just any combustible element that goes in your mm-hmm. throat. It has a potential for causing harm. Obviously, yeah. cigarettes are probably the worst thing. Cigars, yeah, likewise. Yeah. But, yeah. But again, not as bad as cigarettes, probably. Chew. Um, interesting. You yeah. would think that'd be really bad, but yeah. it's actually it's a relatively low rate of true cancer developing. Um, and again, I think it has something to do with the combustibility versus, you know, putting something just, you know, in a localized place. I'm gonna get my skull on. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't recommend that either. Yeah, now it because it does have it does increase risk, but it like you said, and it does other things. Yeah, bad dentition. Other things, yeah, yeah, yeah. which are grody to the max. Yes, but yeah. Well, that's super helpful, man. It's such a uh, yeah, thrill. No, we outlasted cool. your family. They left without you. He's like, oh, he's talking, Daddy's talking about cancer again. Bad luck. <laughs> boring. That's right. Boring. We had some great pizza, by the way. Pachi's Pizza. Awesome. Oh, yeah, thank you. Not bad. No, thanks for coming. Of course. The least I can do is feed you pizza. It's like morning report or something. <laughs> that's right. Like, here you go. And here's some stale bagels and, you know, hella carbs, bro. Uh, man, thank you. Yeah, so absolutely. So if people want to ask questions, you can leave them in the comments. You can always private message. I, we can't answer individual medical advice questions, but we can answer bigger questions. And then the hope is we have Patrick back on the show for a third time. Uh, and he's at UCSF. You can check out their website and see all the information on all the specialties there. Uh, and uh, we out, people. What up? All right. By the way, uh, what are you doing this weekend, man? This weekend? Yeah. I don't know. What are you up to? I don't know. Let's do something. I'm going to get him on a mountain bike and we're going to hurt ourselves. (laughs) All right, guys, we out. All right. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. 
it, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.